X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, October 30th. Halloween is tomorrow. Stay back. Today is the last day of our fun drive. The last day and a big step to hopefully move the organization into its next phase. Election is coming up soon. I want to say thanks to Lee Shaker and James Ostink and Quinn Riley and Katie and Jake Kinderchuk. Thank you to those listeners of The Local who have made gifts to support this and to support X-Ray. We'd love you to join us for election night. We have a bunch of luminaries planned. We'd really love you to come. You can email the local at xray.fm. Or better yet, call up and become a member or boost your pledge, 503-233-9729. 503-233-X-Ray. X-Ray. This Friday evening, we're going to have another Zoom gathering, and it'll be on YouTube. And I think you'll be able to just log on to the xray.fm website to participate. But again, if you want to participate, ping us at the local at xray.fm for the final push of the fun drive. We might be able to see even a few of us together face to face. X-Ray. Today, back in the day, October 30th, 1905, the October Manifesto was issued by Tsar Nicholas II. The Declaration promised basic civil rights, allowed for a Duma and elected parliament. Sergei Witt, Russia's Minister of Finance from 1892 to 1905, embarked on a massive modernization campaign throughout Russia. And Witt grew Russia through industrialization, but without political reform. 80% of the population were still technically peasants. The economy, largely based on agriculture class conflicts, began to become more heated. Tensions reached a boiling point on January 22, 1905, when after trying to deliver a petition to the Tsar, peaceful protesters were fired upon by palace guards. The incident is known in Russia as Bloody Sunday, as many as 234 demonstrators were killed, some sources claiming a death toll in the thousands. Though resistant to reform, Nicholas II granted liberties included in the manifesto, including freedom of conscience, speech, assembly, and association, universal manhood suffrage, yeah, the manhood was in quotes, and participation in the Duma, an elected parliament that could confirm new laws. The immediate reaction around the nation was relative satisfaction. But the monarchy persisted and continued with political violence, and eventually the Tsar was toppled in the February Revolution of 1917. Today, back in the day, exactly 56 years after the October Manifesto, the Soviet Union tested the Tsar Bomba, the most powerful nuclear weapon ever created. The Tsar Bomba is about 1,570 times more powerful than the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. Ten times the energy of all conventional explosives used during World War II. That bomb was tested in 1961. The fireball visible almost a thousand kilometers away from the drop site and the mushroom cloud lifted over seven times the height of Mount Everest. Today, back in the day, October 30th, 1938, Orson Welles read an adaptation of a 40-year-old sci-fi novel. He went on the Mercury Theater on air. There were announcements of the episode being a work of fiction. But the episode started as though it were a regular radio program being interrupted by news of an alien invasion. For some less attentive listeners, this proved to be convincing. According to a study by the Radio Project, most listeners were not afraid of aliens. Instead, they believed the report was announcing invading Germans. The panic was much less widespread than is in popular imagination. But still, the producers of the War of the Worlds had a rough night. Producer John Hausman remembers it like this, and I'm quoting, The press was let loose upon us. Ravening for horror. How many deaths had we heard of? What did we know of the fatal stampede in a Jersey Hall? Implying it was one of many. What traffic deaths? The ditches must be choked with corpses. The suicides? Haven't you heard about the one on Riverside Drive? It is all quite vague in my memory and quite terrible. 
Two years later, Orson Welles and H.G. Wells met at a lecture in San Antonio. About the panic, the author said, You haven't got the war right under your chins, and the consequence is if you can still play with the ideas of terror and conflict, it's a natural thing to do until you're right up against it. To which the actor responded, Until it ceases to be a game. We'll start with your quick six news headlines. Street Roots joins with a focus on housing, and we'll have an interview with State Treasurer Tobias Reed. X-ray. First up, it is Emily Gilliland with today's Quick Six Local Rundown. Wednesday's City Council budget hearings did not reach a decision. The $18 million cut to the Portland Police Bureau budget is still up in the air. After a six-hour budget hearing in which at least 120 Portlanders testified, the City Council decided to postpone the vote until after next week's general election. Among the proposed fall budget amendments was an $18 million cut to the Portland Police Bureau, which Commissioners Joanne Hardesty and Chloe Udaley are pushing for. That $18 million would be split between the Housing Bureau to prevent evictions and emergency food assistance. Mayor Ted Wheeler has said about the proposed cuts, quote, It's clear that proposals on the table have captured the will and the interest of many in our community. It's our job to ensure that any decisions we make result in the change we all want to see. Several members of the City Council, including me, have questions that require answers before we can be assured that will be the case. The hearing was scheduled to end at 6 p.m. so that Mayor Wheeler could attend the East Portland Action mayoral debate, which included Teresa Rayford. Rayford and Sarah Iannarone requested to cancel the event so that all testimonies could be heard by the commissioners. The Mercury reported that it is unlikely Wheeler and Commissioner Amanda Fritz will vote in favor of the budget cuts, which means Commissioner Dan Ryan could be a tiebreaker. As we reported yesterday, the Tuesday before the hearing, protesters gathered in front of Commissioner Ryan's home. After the chanting started, Ryan came out of his home and listened to the protesters for about an hour. Ryan also told the group he was in contact with the Portland Police Bureau and asked them not to intervene on the protests. In June, the city cut $15 million from the Portland Police Bureau budget. Many Portlanders did not feel that went far enough, which is just part of the reason protests on behalf of the Black Lives Matter movement are continuing today. And now your daily dose of data. On Thursday, the Oregon Health Authority confirmed 424 new coronavirus cases, bringing the state total to 43,228. They also announced seven new coronavirus-related deaths, bringing the state's total death toll to 671. Last week, Oregon's new COVID cases set a record last week with a 14% increase. From Monday, October 19th through Sunday, October 25th, COVID-19 infections rose by 2,642. The rate of positive test results stayed at 6.5%. The virus is spreading most rapidly among people under 40. While our case counts are rising, they remain modest compared to other states. Up to 40,000 Oregonians received unemployment benefits prematurely. A $300 supplemental benefit known as the Lost Wages Assistance Program was sent out to many Oregonians who were already receiving unemployment. The checks were for the amount of $1,800 uncovered six weeks of back pay. Federal law requires that overpay be recouped, but most should be able to keep the money if they complete an application as they likely qualify. The verification requires residents to go online and attest that they lost their jobs due to the pandemic, a step that was not required for those receiving pandemic unemployment assistance benefits. 
The unemployment department has claimed they will work out repayment plans with those who do not qualify for the LWA they received. Street Roots registered 125 houseless people to vote in this election. While Oregon's mail-in voting system is a godsend for many, it can prevent people without a permanent address from voting. Street Roots and their vendor team work to register 125 houseless people to vote by letting people use their street address. Raven Drake, the ambassador program manager at Street Roots, explained that some houseless people don't realize they can vote. Street Roots vendor James Doobie, who goes by Pops, said that it is important for people on the streets to vote and that measures like the cigarette tax could really affect the houseless population. Most people who registered through Street Roots have picked up their ballots. Only 30 remain, and they will be hand-delivered this week. Portland Commissioner Joanne Hardesty has endorsed Sarah Ianna Roan for mayor. A month after withdrawing support for Ted Wheeler's re-election and six days before the election, Commissioner Hardesty has announced her support for Ianna Roan. The endorsement was announced via Facebook after a lengthy budget hearing in which Sarah Iannarone announced her support of the $18 million cut to the Portland Police Bureau. Hardesty said she believes Mayor Wheeler's limited status quo thinking could stunt Portland as it faces COVID-19, civil unrest, and other institutional challenges. The mayoral race is tight between Iannarone and Wheeler. As of Thursday, 60% of Multnomah County ballots have been returned. And finally, some good news. Portlanders will be able to celebrate Halloween in the safety of the outdoors. The forecast for Halloween night brings clear skies and a full moon. And not just a full moon, but a blue moon. The first Halloween blue moon since 1944. October 31st usually brings heavy rains, but 2020 is offering us a break and postponing Halloween showers for another day. Additionally, the holiday will last an extra hour as daylight savings time ends Saturday night. Remember, though, we are experiencing a pandemic, so following respiratory etiquette and maintaining distance is highly encouraged. X-ray. And now we have an interview with Joanne Jewell, executive editor for Street Roots. She'll be talking with Andy Lindbergh and Julia Oppenheimer about public housing and the housing policy here in Portland. Joanne, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So the latest edition of Street Roots uh, covers a lot about the history of public housing. Uh, What factors have contributed to the decline of public housing? Right. Well, it's public housing is uh, very expensive and it has a a pretty storied history. So one could argue that public housing as it was should decline. It wasn't necessarily a positive thing. It was a tool of segregation. Um, it was used to separate black and white neighborhoods. Uh, so it has a very controversial past. But in modern times, it's just, it, it is, the public housing to understand it's wholly owned by the government. It is housing that is, uh, because it's wholly owned by the government, it is there to serve the lowest income people. We're talking zero to 30 percent of uh, medium family income. And for someone in the Portland area, that's someone making less than $18,500 a year, I believe. So it is for the poorest of the poor. And because it doesn't get any kind of rent assistance from, say, the people living there, it really relies on government funding, which has been retreating. And, you know, the government's, um, the federal government's been pulling back from supporting public housing and kind of transitioning it 
into uh, what is called RADs. These are uh, investment opportunities for developers to infuse money into public housing uh, buildings and units uh, in a way to preserve them. So it's a way of drawing in additional funding to help save the actual unit, but it also takes away the public housing portion of it, which is a protection for people, for the tenants, uh, that it would always be there. So it has some controversy to it, but there's been a real evolution since public housing started back in uh, the late 30s, actually. So it's really evolved, and we're now at a point where we just we simply don't have enough. We don't have enough for the lowest income. Uh, they are the ones who are the most in need of finding a, an affordable apartment these days. What what role has uh, race played? You 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 mentioned uh, public housing as a as a tool of segregation. Uh, can you expand a little bit more about about how race has played into this history of public housing? Well, sure. I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the term redlining, and this was a process of uh, granting mortgages, granting good rates to white families, and denying them to black families. So. All things being equal, if you have a a low-income population of black uh, people and white people, the white people were going to get those opportunities, get the mortgage, get the the loans, uh, the financial assistance to move on out of uh, assisted housing or public housing uh, and buy a home. They would have those opportunities. Those opportunities weren't given to black families. And so you develop uh, this kind of segregation of black neighborhoods uh, that have higher densities of public housing simply because the opportunities to get out of those neighborhoods and, and just move on up and reach the American dream simply weren't granted, uh, which is interesting. It was the – in the reporting, I, I found it fascinating that in the original manual around administering the Fair Housing Act, um, it writes that it, it was important to protect neighborhoods from being invaded by incompatible social and racial groups. Literally, that's what it says. It says if a neighborhood is, yeah, it, it was really kind of jarring. If a neighborhood is to retain stability, according to the manual, it is necessary the property shall continue to be occupied by the same social and racial classes. A change in social or racial occupancy generally contributes to instability and a decline in values. That's a direct quote from the Manual for Administering Fair Housing Act regulations. And so it's fascinating that the terminology and the attitudes really reflect today what we're hearing from this administration, mm-hmm. even to the word of the word invaded, invasion. I mean, the, the Trump administration is, is, you know, appealing to white suburban communities um, in this election process saying we're not going to let your neighborhoods be invaded by, you know, quote-unquote low-income housing, uh, we'll protect you. It's a pretty fascinating echo back to the the late 30s, so, and, and quite disturbing, honestly. It's like we've just gone back in time. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the main barriers locally to progress when it comes to creating policy that addresses homelessness here? Um, you know, money is always an issue. I think there's a lot of good intentions. This series really looks at having federal support. Um, you know, there's great programs in this city um, and in this region, uh, but, but they need to be ramped up. I mean, a lot of the people we spoke to said, we, we know how to do this right. We just don't have, we just need to bring it up to scale and we need to recognize the scope of the situation. We really need to recognize that we don't have just 
you know, 4,000 people in the Multnomah County area, according to a point-in-time count, we've got 38,000 people experiencing homelessness in the Tri-County area. Uh, These are massive numbers, and and the social service networks are not going to be able to to hold that or to correct that situation. And certainly with the pandemic and the economic fallout and, you know, what some people are calling, you know, an eviction tsunami coming after these moratorium and local governments aren't going to be able to to do this lift on their own. I mean, we're talking billions and billions of dollars uh, in back rent that's going to be owed coming to the start of the year. And that's not something that the city of Portland or Multnomah County or even the state of Oregon can carry. This is this is uh, uh, something that is a national problem, and uh, people are looking to Washington, D.C. to do something about it. Speaking of Washington, D.C., you got to talk to House Representative Ilan Omar for this week's issue. Um, can you tell us a little bit about her proposed legislation called Homes for All? Right. She's looking at Homes for All. It's a sweeping plan, and it would commit $1 trillion in affordable housing by 2031. And this is this echoes uh, calls to action that we've heard from our own uh, Congressman Earl Blumenauer, who is who's also saying that we need big action around these issues. We need big funding. We can't just um, piecemeal our way out of the situation. So that's a major commitment. We'll see where it goes. Uh, it's it's a big progressive act, but you know the and the, and the dollar amounts can turn people off. But if we look at the true scope of what's going on, $1 trillion is probably, well, I'm not going to speculate, but (laughs) according to to the Congresswoman from Minnesota, $1 trillion is going to be needed by 2031. Wow. $1 trillion. I can't even wrap my brain around that number. That's a lot of couch cushions to look for change in. Well, I mean, you can also put in perspective, to, you know, how much does a submarine cost? How much yeah, does yeah. a lot of things cost? I mean, we're in the world of, of trillion-dollar uh, price tags. And, um, you know, we've got 570,000 people literally homeless in this country right now and, you know, millions on the precipice with this pandemic. So who knows what the, what the price tag really will be. That's so true. So uh, what's the Street Roots Action Team uh, been getting up to this week? Uh, the Street Roots Action Team, we have, you know, it's been an all-purpose action team, to be honest with you. The <laughs> pandemic keeps them on their toes, making sure that the office is safe. That's always a constant concern. Uh, and they're constantly working with vendors and new vendors, um, just really driving home the importance of public safety, uh, their personal health, and the, the health of their customers when they're out there selling the paper. So uh, that is uh, a never-ending uh, part of their job. They certainly were working on the census in the past. They were working on getting people registered to vote. And um, yeah, maybe for the holidays, they'll take a breather, but they're, they're a busy bunch. That's great. That's great. Where, where can people learn, learn more about Street Roots? Well, I highly recommend going out, taking a walk, go down, buy what a grocery store, still social distance and pick up an actual paper and say hello to your vendor. They miss their customers terribly. <laughs> and uh, you can also go to streetroots.org. That's streetandroots.org. And there's tons of information. There's past news stories on there. Uh, check it out. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Joanne is the executive editor for Street Roots, uh, recently changed jobs from executive director, <laughs> but back to being executive editor. Thank you so much for speaking with us this morning. Happy to be here.
You got it. X-ray. Tobias Reed, Oregon's current state treasurer, is running for re-election. Treasurer Reed speaks to X-ray's Julia Oppenheimer and Andy Lindbergh about some of Oregon's major priorities and his campaign for re-election. Tobias, thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. Uh, we're getting close to the finish line. What does your last week of campaigning look like? Well, it's a weird time in this uh, COVID campaign. So I've been, uh, like many other people, spending a lot of time on Zoom calls. One of the very few positives of COVID, I suppose, is that uh, it's easier to get around to uh, uh, places in the in the state that I would I would struggle to get to physically. Uh, it's quite a bit easier to click there and have good conversations with people around the state. Yeah, we were just talking to uh, Dana Haynes of the Portland Tribune about that, and um, I wonder your take on do you do you like Zoom campaigning more than in person campaigning? Uh, not not generally, um, but as I say, I think there, there's some positives, and I try to uh, hold on to those positives. The thing that I think is sort of exhausting is the um, it's sort of the Zoom experience is kind of a trick on one's brain. Like a, in part, I'm feeling like I should be getting the the positives of of direct personal interaction, but it's not the same as everybody knows. So uh, at the end of the day, I can kind of think, gosh, I'm tired, but I didn't, I didn't actually go anywhere today. It's just uh, uh, the, the deceit, deceiving sort of experience of, of Zoom. So I look forward to being able to, to look people in the actual eye and, and hear about their experiences more directly uh, after we get through all of this. So uh, oh. uh, I was just going to ask, um, you know, with uh, Oregon going through a pension, pension crisis right now, um, can you explain what that is and how your new program, Oregon Saves, uh, helps to address that problem? Yeah, I guess I would, I would, just, I would frame it a little bit differently because that, the word gets thrown around a lot around uh, pension crisis, and I, I don't think that's necessarily true. What I would say is we, we have a retirement savings crisis in that mm. not enough people are saving for retirement, and that comes from the fact that about half of people who are working uh, in Oregon and across the country don't have a way to save for retirement at work, and that's a big problem. And that, That's really what we are trying to address with Oregon Saves. In fact, we're the, we're the first state in the country uh, to take this approach, and it was uh, a nice bit of continuity. It was one of the last things I worked on as a member of the legislature, and I get to help implement it as treasurer. We passed a law that says if you are an employer in Oregon and you don't choose to offer your own retirement plan, you're obligated to facilitate Oregon Saves. And what that means is you say to your employees, unless you tell me otherwise, 5% of your wages are going into your IRA. And the employee has the ability to to change that 5% number to anything, including zero or anything above that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they're in control. But it kind of flips the script and and turns, um, you know, inertia into into a positive thing. Because without that kind of nudge, um, and that, of course, is the the title of the Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein book from which a lot of these ideas came – um, people don't tend to do it. It's, it's complicated. It's intimidating. It can seem like it's way far off and, and people don't do it. But now we're three years into this program. We have 75,000 people who have funded IRAs. Um, they've saved $70 million. And while that's not enough to retire on yet, it's got people on a path to financial autonomy. And because of the way we set them up as Roth IRAs uh, funded by after-tax contributions, they can be used uh, as an emergency fund in a time like this. And I don't you know, necessarily want to promote that as an emergency fund because it is intended for long-term savings, but it's a heck of a lot better than, than other options someone who might be confronting uh, unemployment might, might face. And the best news of all is that even when people 
are needing to use those funds for emergencies, they're staying in the program and continuing to save. So we're really establishing and building a culture of savings, and that's going to be to the benefit of all Oregonians over time. Do you have uh, at your fingertips um, any information about um, at what earning level most uh, people who are taking uh, advantage of Oregon Saves are, are working? You know, is it a lot of people at uh, you know minimum wage? What you know? Do you have those numbers? Yeah. I, I don't have the, the the numerics in front of me, but what I can say is that it, it follows what you would expect that that people who are uh, at, at lower wage jobs tend to be more represented in, in Oregon Saves, uh, in the Oregon Saves population. These are uh, service, service workers. Um, they're uh, hospitality. They're uh, in, in restaurant and um, lodging kinds of things. And all of that sort of stuff you would expect is, is proving to be true. Um, we do have, have some information about those uh, uh, the, the, the numbers, but I don't have them in front of me at this, at this moment. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, uh, of course. In our last conversation with Dana Haynes, he talked about what a great debate you and your opponent had and how you're both very qualified. Um, can you just explain to us a little bit about the importance of the treasurer? And, you know, you just told us about Oregon Saves, which sounds really cool. What, what kind of programs do you work on? What do you do? Yeah, there's, I think, a common misperception uh, that, that uh, we have some role in tax collection or de- determining the state budget. Um, but what we really do is keep public money safe and, and growing before it's used for its intended purpose. We, we invest the, the portfolio of the state. The largest portion of that is the public employee retirement fund, the pension. Uh, we invest the short-term fund, which is really sort of a, a money market for state agencies and, uh, and a lot of local governments, uh, a number of other uh, portfolios. Uh, we issue and manage all the state's debt, the, the bonds that we use to, to finance infrastructure, like affordable housing and roads and bridges and those sorts of things. Um, we run these, these financial empowerment programs. We just talked about Oregon Saves, but we've also um, transformed the way the, the college savings plan works to make it more relevant for uh, low- and middle-income families. Uh, we have a really um, innovative uh, savings program for people who are living with disabilities. Uh, the treasurer sits on the on the state land board um, and a number of other economic development related agencies, and really, you know, we're the we're the bank for the state and the investment shop. So we're uh, a financial hub uh, for Oregon and, and for Oregonians. So it is an important job. And uh, as people are obviously paying attention to the to the presidential race, I hope they're coming down the ballot uh, and filling <laughs> out their their ballots uh, completely in these uh, in these last six days. With this. Uh damaging and tragic summer of forest fires. Uh, forest management uh, has been in our minds. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what your priorities are when it comes to forest management? And and I, I would appreciate uh, knowing a little bit about how uh, the, the treasurer is uh, involved in the forest management uh, process and decision-making in Oregon. Sure. Well, there's two ways that I'm involved uh, presently, at least. Um, one uh, is as the, the, the co-chair with, with Labor Commissioner Val Hoyle of the Governor's Wildfire Economic Recovery Council. Uh, we meet uh, once a week at the, at the present time to uh, help develop recommendations on how Oregon's going to respond to the uh, really horrific uh, experience we had with wildfires uh, this summer and, and into the fall. Uh, and I think what's potentially exciting about that is the, is the nudge that it might give us to think about things differently and 
to use the, uh, the words of, a, of another candidate, uh, build back better. Uh, the other one is as a member of the, of the land board and with the governor and the secretary of state, the land board um, is responsible for the management of, of trust lands. And this goes back to statehood when Oregon was given uh, specific sections of land to support uh, public education, K-12 education specifically. Uh, num- a lot of that land has been sold, some is consolidated, and what remains has the uh, constitutional obligation to deliver returns for the common school fund, essentially an endowment. And some of that land is, is forest. Uh, the most visible uh, is the Elliott State Forest, and it is also emblematic of the tension that, that we confront in that context because, on the one hand, we have this constitutional obligation to deliver returns, but on the other hand, uh, a lot of us um, have really strong feelings about how forests ought to be managed as forests, and those can, can create um, you know, different uh, routes if you're, if you're managing it as a forest or managing it specifically as a, as a money-making enterprise. So that experience, I think, has been uh, really interesting. We, I, I joined um, the land board in the midst of a conversation that was already underway about the, the Elliott, uh, and the previous land board had elected to pursue a, a plan to, to sell the forest and, and compensate the common school fund. So I took a leadership role and uh, have helped to craft an, an alternative, which I'm really excited about. There's still a bit of work to, to do, but we're on the cusp of being able to transform that forest into a research forest at Oregon State University, one of the, the top-ranked forestry schools in the world. And what's exciting about that to me is it will allow us to, to meet our obligations to the Common School Fund. At the same time, uh, we can play a, a, a leading role in the world in exploring sustainable forestry, how to confront climate change, um, how to deal with uh, endangered species, how to, how to do all this in a way that, um, that meets our, our various um, goals for a forest and contributes to you know, creating future foresters and, and faithful to such an important part of our of our economy in Oregon. So I think that is uh, a good example of the approach I try to try to bring to these questions that uh, recognizes the the unique and unusual aspects of each of the components of our of our forests uh, and and pulls in some some creativity and collaboration to to balance those tensions. That's great. What uh, what would be your top priorities for another for your next term? Yeah, I, I really want to continue our work to to modernize our investment programs. Um, we have done a, a really good job uh, in my first term of bringing work back to Oregon. Um, there are some places where where we need specific expertise uh, that that we can't get in Oregon, but there are a lot of places where we can do the work in in Tigard, uh, where I'm calling you from this morning. Uh, a lot less expensively than if we contract with people in Manhattan. Um, that doesn't take uh, uh, a real revolutionary observation to, to note that, but it adds up. And so since we've, we've begun this effort, we've, uh, we've added $500 million in additional pension fund capital because of those decisions. And that's a benefit to every Oregonian. A, a dollar that we earn in investments um, is a dollar that doesn't have to come from elsewhere in the budget or from taxpayers, and it leaves us more room to, uh, to, to buy other things we, we care about, education and health care and the, and the like. So modernizing that, um, we had a really successful um, first few issuances of, of sustainability bonds. Um, that were focused on affordable housing, so that has created a different set of demand in the market and allowed us to make those dollars go farther and build more affordable housing. We want to continue those. Want to continue to roll out uh, Oregon Saves to, to more Oregonians, 
make sure that college savings plan that we've we've uh, really revamped to focus on on low and middle income families uh, because having uh, a, a side statistic here having a, a college savings account means that any kid uh, regardless of how much is in it uh, is three times more likely to go to college and We've been um, dissatisfied with the fact that, that the people who use um, those cost savings accounts have, have historically been disproportionately affluent white folks from, from metro areas. So we're really focused on trying to make sure that, that every kid, every geographic and demographic corner in the state has access to that transformational kind of uh, savings opportunity. So uh, lots to do in a second term, and I hope, uh, hope we'll get, uh, get to do it. What, where can people find out more about your campaign? Thanks for asking, TobiasReed.com. And uh, as I always say, it's read like read a book, R-E-A-D. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Tobias, and uh, good luck in next week's election. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for your work. X-Ray. Thanks to Joanne and Treasurer Reed for joining The Local. And a big thanks to our production team, Executive Editor Will Romy, Supporting Editors and Writers Miranda Selinger, Jonathan Covington-Brame, Sophie Malone, Brian Miller, Julia Oppenheimer, Carly Quadros, Jaleesa Ringring, Ryder Sherwood, and Sam Smargiazzi, and co-executive producer and host Jefferson Smith. I'm Emily Gilliland. Thanks for original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.health.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Business Journal, KGW, the Willamette Week, COIN, Pamplin Media, OPB, K2, The Oregonian, Statesman Journal, and News Partners, The Portland Mercury, and Street Roots. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. And thank you for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, democracy. Speaking of democracy, what are your election night plans? X-Ray is partnering with Portland Forward to host election results live from 7 to 9 p.m. in the Portland area on 107.1 and 91.1 FM. And for those of you outside of the area, on X-Ray's YouTube page. U.S. Senator Ron Wyden, candidate for Secretary of State Shamia Fagan, Winsby Campos, Con Pham, New DA Mike Schmidt, Senator Lou Frederick, and so many more will be stopping in with their thoughts on election night. We would love to see you there. We'll talk to you on Monday. X-Ray.